tonight's shear is a very, very fascinating story that took place approximately 200 years ago, possibly a little bit more, and it deals with two very great tzaddikim. Before we begin the story, we want to make it very clear that both people that we're going to speak about are definitely tzaddikim, talmidei chachamim. <coughs> One is the, the first, whom we're going to refer to as the Shepetovka, because that was the name of the city that he came from. His name was Horav Yaakov Shamshoin Mishepetovka. He was a student of one of the greatest students of the Baal Shem Tov HaKodesh. <coughs> the second one is known throughout the world as the Noida Yehuda, and he was he is one of the poskim in Shulchan Aruch. He's one of the leading rabbis of the Shulchan Aruch, who's very, very much respected. <coughs> And this story deals with a meeting that they had under an unusual circumstance and the Torah that passed between them and what was accomplished by this meeting. This First, before we begin, we have to introduce two terms a little bit to understand in what context we're referring to them. The first is the term chasidim, or chasid, and the second is the term mitnaged, mis- misnaged, as it's known in the world. <coughs> The term Hasidim, as we're using it to refer to here, the time that we're talking about is the the 1700s and 1800s, shortly after the time that the Baal Shem Tov was revealed in the world, and he professed, he emphasized, he began to underline a certain thing that seemed to be forgotten by many of the leading religious people at that time. At that time, we had many of the rabbis of Shulchan Aruch who had big yeshivot, many, many hundreds of students that were learning by them, and they were learning a lot of Torah, a lot of Gemara, a lot of Shulchan Aruch, but when it came to application, when it came to lema'aseh, to actual performing mitzvot, we find that these people were, most of them, were sitting and studying Torah day and night, which in itself, in many ways, is considered the greatest mitzvah, but yet, it's not the only mitzvah. And as we're going to learn in the story that we're going to speak about tonight, one without the other, the whole greatness of the study of Torah is only when it leads to ma'aset, to mitzvot. When a person from the Torah zocher to come to serve Hashem through each one of the 613 mitzvot and all their branches and extensions, that's when the Torah is really serving its purpose. Whereas at that point in time, it seemed that many people were beginning to separate the two, to consider the study of Torah as the entire religion, and when it came to actual performance of misvot, or when it came to helping a Jew, people started to become very insensitive towards that. Whereas the Baal Shem Tov underlined very much the concept of Hasidim was not ones who are not learned. <coughs> On the contrary, as we're going to see from tonight's story, those who were true Hasidim were very, very learned, and in many, many ways far superior than the others. But yet there was a different direction, a different emphasis. The underlying factor was the doing, the performance of mitzvot, using the knowledge of Torah, the fact that the study of Torah was step one. Not that that became an ends, that this is my, this is the sum of, this is the completion of my religiousness. I know how to learn, or I learn. 
The purpose of the learning is, that's phase one. First you're taught what to do, then you go out and actually do it. And if a person spends his whole time learning what to do, and never actually gets around to doing it, obviously he's missing the point to a tremendous extent. Now we begin the actual story of the confrontation. <coughs> the Balshemtov, whose formal name is Rabbi Israel Balshemtov, that's how he was known throughout the world. <coughs> the Balshemtov had a student who was known as Harav Yaakov Yosef Mipulna. Rav Yaakov Yosef from the city of Pulna who wrote a sefer called, the sefer that he's most famous for, is the sefer called Toledot Yaakov Yosef. This is a very deep perush on the entire Torah with many, many chidushim, mostly based on the teachings of his rabbi, the Baal Shem Tov. <coughs> as soon as he came out, as soon as this sefer was revealed and began to be printed and publicized, Many of the mitnagdim at that time who had an automatic negative attitude towards Hasidim and certainly any Torah that was being produced, that was being printed by the Hasidim, they immediately assumed that it was negative, it was useless, and they went to many, many large extents to show their disdain for this. For example, this specific Talmid Chacham, this leader of Jewry, of world Jewry, the Noda Bihuda, when he heard that this Sefer had come out, he issued a decree among his students that this Sefer, if a person sees this Sefer, it's worthy of being burned. It should be burned, it's not to be studied, because this is the Torah of the Hasidim, which we which we don't accept. We don't accept them as being an authentic source for Torah. The Toledot Yaakov Yosef, who had passed right shortly after his sefer began to be publicized, he passed away. It's the story begins by saying that in where he was, in the place where he was in heaven, he was very disturbed at this item, at the fact that one of the leading rabbis who was alive in the world, actually a rabbi, one of the rabbis of Shulchan Aruch, would use this type of would would apply such an edict to his sefer on number one, this was very insulting, this was very derogatory to one who was so great at Sadiq, and number two, this was very unwarranted, this was very incorrect. So he came to one of his students one of his close students was this Shepetovka, this Rav Yaakov Shamshon Mishepetovka. We're going to refer to him as the Shepetovka. That's the name of the city from which he came from, but that's the nickname that he's usually known by. This rabbi came to his student in a dream, the Toldot came to his student, the Shepetovka, in a dream, <coughs> and he told him that I want you to do me a favor. Being a student of mine, I want you to stand up for my kavod, for the kavod of this sefer that I came out with. I want you to rectify the situation. This leading rabbi, this Talmid Chacham, the Noda Bihuda, actually said that this sefer should be burnt and destroyed, and he's acting in a very, very disrespectful manner towards this. I want you to undertake a mission of convincing him that he's wrong, that he's very wrong. <coughs> This rabbi, the Shepetovka, had tremendous respect and love for his rabbi, and he immediately undertook this project with zeal, with fervor. And he, he set a plan in his mind of how to go about this. 
the first step of his plan was to dress up as a very poor man, and he put a sack on his shoulders, and he headed for the city of Prague. This was the city where the Noda Behuda, this leading rabbi of the Mitnagdim, this was the city where he was the leader of the city, and he had a very unusual yeshiva. His close circle of students consisted of a group of 60 students. Each one of them was responsible for one Gemara of Shas. Each one of them was fully acquainted with one complete Gemara by heart, so that if he ever wanted, if he ever wasn't sure about where a certain sentence was in the Gemara, if he knew which Gemara was in, he would simply point to that student, this student was proficient in Berachot, this one in Zivachim, this one in Achot. Each one was a master of one Gemara by heart completely, and naturally that wasn't the only Gemara they knew. They knew all the others pretty well too. But each one specialized in one Gemara. <coughs> the Shepetovka set out for the city of Prague. He came to the city <coughs> and he immediately went to the home of the Noda Behuda, to the home of this rabbi. He knocked on the door, he came inside, and he approached this. In this rabbi's home was where he had this closed circle of students who studied together on a daily basis. <coughs> The Shepetovka came in, he right away walked up to where the rabbi, the leader, the leader of the class, this Noda Behuda, was sitting, and the rabbi asked him, uh, what are you here for? The Shepetovka told him, I'm, I'm a poor man. I'm here because I'm a poor man. This rabbi immediately answered him very curtly, that I can see, that I don't need you to tell me. What are you here for? What's your purpose here? The Shepetovka told him, there are three things that I'd like to request of you. The first is food, the second is lodging, a place to stay, <clears throat> and the third is that you should please undertake to raise, to collect funds for me in the city here, in your city. The Noda Behuda looked up at this person, at this poor man, this person who was dressed as a poor man, sort of with a uh, disdainful type of feeling, and he told him, that's not really my line of work, number one. And uh, you're, you're asking for quite a few things. In other words, you want this, you have a whole list of demands that you want. The Shepetovka immediately <coughs> fired back, don't you have any respect for the one who's standing beside me? who was sitting in front of a sefer, he looked up again. At last glance, all he remembered seeing was just this poor man standing in front of him. He looked up again to see if there was anybody else, if anyone else had magically appeared next to him. He didn't see anybody, so he said, who's standing next to you? He told him, David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Ki ya'amod limin evyon. There's a pasuk that says that Hashem, the Shekhinah, stands on the right side of a poor person. The Zohar Kadosh stresses many, many times that those people that are closest to the Shekhinah are the poor people. Because they have a broken heart by nature, they're the ones who are able to develop the closest relationship with the Shekhinah, ones who have this quality of a lev nishbar, a broken heart. The Inoda Behuda said, fine. And uh, he told him... Uh, Again, you're, you're still asking for quite a few things. 
So this rabbi, the Shepetovka, replied, I, it seems to me from the way you're talking that you don't even understand the meaning of a simple pasuk in the Torah, a simple pasuk in the Chumash, and the interpretation of Rashi HaKadosh on that pasuk. There's a pasuk in the Torah which says, <coughs> Ushemartem va'asitem, the Jews should guard the Torah and perform all the mitzvot of the Torah, va'asitem, guard them and perform them, kihi chokhmatchem uvinatchem le'enei ha'amim. Because this is your wisdom and your knowledge before all the goyim of the world. This is what you carry with you as a banner, as a flag in front of all the goyim. This is what the Pasuk says, and Rashi HaKadosh explains, <coughs> Ushmartem zu Mishnah. The word Ushmartem refers to the study of Mishnah, the Gemara. Va'asitem, and do them. In other words, Ushmartem means watch the mitzvot. How do you watch the mitzvot? By studying the Mishnah, knowing what Hashem wants you to do. That's how you perform this mitzvah of Ushmartem. Va'asitem, the Pasuk says Va'asitem, and do the mitzvot, perform the mitzvot. Rashi HaKadosh says, Kemashma'o. It means just what it says. That's what the Rashi HaKadosh says. Kemashma'o means exactly what it says, that's what it means. The Shepetavka said, Why did Rashi HaKadosh have to bother saying that word, Kemashma'o? What does that mean? What is Rashi HaKadosh coming to add? If Rashi HaKadosh had nothing to say, in clarifying this word vasitem, then we know that if it says vasitem, it means vasitem. If it says do the mitzvot, it means do the mitzvot. Why does Rashi Kadosh have to tell me that it means exactly what it says? What could I have thought? The Shepetavka began to explain. <coughs> we find the Gemara tells us that when Hashem originally presented the Torah to Bnei Israel, before presenting it to the Jews, he first presented it to many other nations of the Goyim. First he went to the nation of Esav Harasha, and he asked them, I have this fantastic treasure, are you interested? They asked him, could you give us a sample? A jeweler comes to sell to market jewelry, he shows off a sample briefcase. Can you give us a sample of what's in the Torah? Hashem said, sure. The, the, in the, one, of the, one of the mitzvot of the Torah is lo tiritzach, thou shalt not kill, forbidden to kill. They said, that's not up our alley, because about us it's written, va'al charabacha tichyeh. One of our ancestors, Esav Harasha, was told to live by the sword. We live by the sword. Murder is part of our life, our way of life. So obviously the Torah is not for us. Next, Hashem went to the Yishmaelim, to the, to the Arabs. Hashem offered them the Torah. They asked, can you give us a sample of what's written there? Hashem said, sure. It's written, lo tinaf, no adultery. Adultery is forbidden. They said, impossible. It's part of our way of life. It's, this, this is our ancestry. is based on adultery and everything. And so on and so forth. Hashem went to all the nations of the Goyim, offered it to them. They all rejected it. The Shepetovka said, the question is, if your approach to religion is the correct one, that the, the true service of Hashem is the study of Torah, these nations shouldn't have had any problem. They could have been 99% religious. Study the Torah, great. Study about thou shalt not kill and give tzedakah and everything comes to doing it. That's not that important. 
the fact that they all refused and Hashem literally took the Torah away from them and gave it to the Jews was based on one premise only, and that was the performance of the mitzvah. The study of Torah, no, Esav HaRasha didn't say, I don't want to study Torah. He said, I can't comply with one mitzvah. Hashem said, forget it, then you don't get anything. Excuse me. Then you don't get anything. Yishmael, I can't comply with one mitzvah. You get nothing. If, if what yours, if the purpose, if the whole religion is the study of Torah, this isn't what should have happened. And this is the true meaning in this Pasuk. This is what Rashi HaKadosh wants to emphasize. Ushmartem, you should study the Torah, va'asitem, and perform its mitzvot. Why? What distinguishes, what differentiates the Jews from all the other nations? It's not the study of Torah. It's the va'asitem, kemashma'o. Simple performing the mitzvah, that's what makes the difference. That's what the goyim were not ready to accept. That's why they rejected the Torah. That's why they have no part in the Torah. So therefore... I don't see why you're making such a big deal. I come in here and I ask you to help me out with tzedakah and you tell me you're busy learning and learning is the most important mitzvah, that's what you're doing, then you obviously don't understand the meaning of this pasuk in the Torah. This is what the Shepetovka said to this Noda Bihuda. He said to him, I see, that, uh, I see that you have some interesting things to say, but the fact is that my, I am a Rosh Yeshiva, I sit and study a Yeshiva of students, study with a Yeshiva of students here, I have a special committee in the city, a Bet Din, of three rabbis, they're the ones who take up all charity cases that come to the neighborhood, they, I send the person to them, they take care of it. So how about if you go see them, and, and uh, they'll take care of you. The Shepetovka said, fine, and he left. <coughs> He went to visit these rabbis, and an hour or two later, he returned to this rabbi, to the Noda Bihuda. Came knocking on the door, they let him in. Right away, he went up front to where this Rosh Yeshiva was sitting, and he told him, uh, I have a problem. He told him, these judges that you sent me to, I see that all three of them are liars. You know, Dabi Yehuda looked up at him and shocked. These were the three leading rabbis in the city at that time. <clears throat> he said, I've never had any problem. Nobody has ever questioned their honesty before. You say this so blatantly, they're liars? He said, sure, it's very, very obvious. And there's no way in the world for me to be able to judge them lekaf zechut. There's no way for me to say anything in their behalf, in their favor. Why? He said it's a simple pasuk in the Torah. There's a pasuk that says, Rodef <coughs> A person who chases after charity and good deeds and kindness, shows kindness to other people, Yimtza chayim will be zochet to life, to wealth, and to honor. All three things. He said, I went to these three judges... One of them told me he's very old. I asked him to come around collecting with me. He said, look at me, I'm frail. I'm not in a position to go out and collecting. We'll make an appeal. We'll send out letters to the community. Maybe they'll give, well, they'll send in some donations. We'll have some money to give you. The Pasuk says that one who performs mitzvot of tzedakah, yimtza chayim, he'll find life, he'll find strength. 
if this rabbi says he's weak, he's obviously not one who deals in the mitzvah tzedakah. A second rabbi told me <coughs> that the people in the city aren't that rich. They can't really afford to give much. Again, he's lying. Because the pasuk says that rodef tzedakah, that one who strives to perform the mitzvah tzedakah, yimtza tzedakah, he will find chayim tzedakah v'chavod. It says that if he tries, he'll get money, he'll be able to raise donations. So if this rabbi said that he can't seem to raise much money, he's obviously lying. Either he's lying, or he's negligent in performing his duty. If this is the committee that raises charity in your city, they can't be too good. The third rabbi told me that it's beneath his kavod, he can't really go around collecting with me, because he generally deals with she'elot, people bring questions to him about kasher, about a pot and meat and milk, those kind of things. He's not usually in the habit of going around raising money with somebody. Here again, he's lying because the Pasuk says, Rodev Tzedakah Yimtza Chavod. The Torah testifies that one who goes about raising charity will be Zochet Kavod, to honor. This is an honor. This isn't something, this isn't something that makes a person low or cheap. If he goes around raising money for Tzedakah, this is the biggest Kavod. So these three rabbis that you sent me to, who turned me away with all of these excuses, they're obviously not that great. They're obviously not that good in performing their duties. The rabbi asked them, <coughs> now I have a question, the Noda Bihuda asked the Shepetavka, now I have a question for you. You seem to be quoting Pesukim, you seem to be very learned in Torah, I have a question for you. The Gemara says that whenever a rabbi comes to a community for the first time, he's visiting a community for the first time, he's required by law to notify the people of the community that he is a rabbi. He must tell them that he's a rabbi so they know to act towards him with respect. Because if not, <coughs> if they're not aware that he's a rabbi, they could act in a disrespectful manner, chas v'shalom, and they could be committing a big sin. They could get punished for this. So the law is that he's required to notify them about this. And interestingly, the Zohar Kadosh says that we find this hinted to in a pasuk. There's a pasuk that says, Yehalelcha zar velo picha. That usually the rule is that a person should never praise himself. A person should never speak highly about himself. Yehalelcha <coughs> zar. Let a stranger praise you. Velo picha, not your own mouth. You should never be the one speaking up your own, speaking about your own greatness, your own goodness, your own qualities. The Zohar Kadosh says we have an interesting play on words in this sentence. If you put the comma in a different place, Yehalelcha zar. The general rule is that you should not be the one speaking about your own qualities. Because other people, let other people do that type of talking for you. If you do it yourself, it's a display of arrogance and it could be taken the wrong way, etc. Velo, what if there's nobody available who knows about you? What if there's nobody around? You're visiting a new neighborhood where nobody knows you, and if you don't talk about yourself, they're not going to know that you're a rabbi, they're not going to show you the proper respect, and chas v'shalom, they're going to be committing a sin. The Zohar Kadosh says, Velo, if there is no stranger available to speak about you, then picha, then your own mouth is permitted, you're permitted to notify the people, to speak to them words of Torah, and to notify them 
the fact that you are a rabbi, so they know how to act towards you. So they know that Yehuda asked this Shepetovka, I don't understand, if, if you're so knowledgeable, you came to me, you presented yourself like a poor man, like an ignorant poor man, you should have told us right off the bat that you're a Talmud Chacham, we would have acted differently towards you, we would have acted nicer, we would have made more of an effort to raise money for you, or to do something special on your behalf. <coughs> the Shepetovka told him angrily, and note, this was all said with a slight sarcasm. He was teasing him and leading him on in this. He told him that that Gemara is only written when you're dealing with regular civilized people, whom even if an Amha'aretz comes into their city, and he's a poor man and he needs food or he needs clothing, they won't just turn him away empty-handed. They'll help him, they'll try to do something for him. About such people, the Torah says that if you're a Talmid Chacham, you must notify them that you're a Talmid Chacham, so they know to treat you extra special. Not special, but extra special. But he says, I come to a city like this, where an Am Ha'aretz, if you thought that I was just a simple nothing, you treat me like nothing, about such a city, this Gemara is not written. I'm not required to notify you that I'm a Talmud Chacham because it probably wouldn't have made any difference. You probably wouldn't have treated me any better. <coughs> because the fact remains that how is it that you people take this so lightly? The Torah says that the mitzvah of orchim, the mitzvah of taking a guest into your home and feeding him and clothing him and providing him with whatever he needs is even a greater mitzvah than receiving the Shekhinah, than speaking to Hashem himself. And this doesn't seem to impress you. The Yenodah Behuda said to, to the Shepetovka, how do we know this? How do we know this fact that taking a guest into your home is considered a bigger mizvah than even speaking to Hashem, receiving Hashem as a guest? <coughs> the the, the Shepetovka replied, we learn this from Avraham Avinu. The Torah tells us <coughs> that there was once an incident where Avraham Avinu was speaking to Hashem and three guests appeared and he said to Hashem, I'm sorry, You'll have to wait. I see these guests coming. I must deal with them first, and then I'll come back to Hashem. So we see clearly that Avraham Avinu showed greater respect for guests than he did for Hashem. The Yenoda Behuda asked him, well, how did Avraham Avinu know to do that? How did Avraham Avinu know that Hashem would want him to show greater respect to the guests than to Hashem? The Shepetovka replied, <coughs> it was very obvious to Avraham Avinu, because the Pasuk tells us that that day, the day on which this incident took place, was the third day after the Brit Milav, Avraham Avinu. And that was the day when he was the most, when he felt the pain of the Brit Milah the most, because when a person is sick, generally the third day of the illness is when the illness is most severe, it's strongest, <clears throat> it builds to a climax, it starts off small and it expands, the pain builds to a climax on the third day, and then it begins to decline. So on that day, Hashem, the Torah tells us that Hashem had pity on Avram Avinu, and Hashem knew that Avram Avinu wouldn't stop looking for guests. Any chance he had to take a guest into his home, he would search and he would work for it and everything, even as sick as he was. 
So the Gemara tells us that Hashem made a miracle. Hashem removed the covering from the sun, and Hashem made the heat of the sun much, much more powerful than it is normally, so that no people would be found outside walking in the streets, so that there would be nobody whom Avraham Avinu could grab to welcome as a guest into his home. Then Hashem went to speak to Avraham Avinu, Hashem spoke to him, and, and during the speaking, the sun was blazing down so hot. The Shepetovka said, if, if Hashem thought that speaking to Hashem was a bigger mitzvah than taking guests into your house, then Hashem didn't have to make this trick with the sun or anything. If Avraham Avinu was speaking to Hashem, naturally, he would not be doing anything else. He wouldn't be taking... If a guest would show up, he would tell the guest, get lost, I'm doing... I'm involved in something much more important now. I have Hashem as my guest. The fact that Hashem had to change the actual nature and had to perform a miracle to take the casing off the sun and to allow the sun to shine so brightly that no guest would be found, no person would be found walking the streets, that proved... That were it not, were there a guest around, it, Hashem would have, the bigger mitzvah would have been to take the guest into his house, even more important than speaking to Hashem. This is what the Shepetovka replied. <coughs> and he said to the Noda Bihuda, and if you don't understand this, and if you don't accept this, then you're not even one. You're not even one whom people should stand up for. Usually the law is that when a rabbi comes into a room, there's a misvah to stand up for him as a sign of respect. He said that if you're one who doesn't show the proper respect to this, this misvah of hachnasat orchim, then there's no need even this to stand up for you. This rabbi reply, replied, <coughs> I can see from the way you're talking that you are from the kat hachasidim, you're from the group of people who call themselves Hasidim, and you know that I generally don't look favorably at them. And again, the Shepetovka replied, that's, that's all the more reason why I say that you do not deserve any respect. If somebody were to ask me, according to Hebrew law, whether they're required to stand up for you or not, the answer is no. And he said, I could prove it to you from a statement in the Gemara. The Gemara says in Pirkei Avot, that one of the rabbis of the Gemara said that if a person is good-natured in a manner where people like him, people look favorably at him, the Gemara uses the term Ruach Habriot, that people look favorably at him, they like him, they like his good deeds, then Hashem likes him also. And if not, if a person is the type of person where people don't see any good deeds coming from him, and therefore they don't like him, the Mishnah says, then Hashem doesn't like him either. So he said, these people who closet themselves in a room and they just study Torah, and people don't see any good deeds whatsoever coming from them, if that's the case, then obviously Hashem is not too satisfied, satisfied with them. <coughs> The Noda Bihuda said, still, I don't get the point. Why are you saying specifically that you would tell a person not to stand up for me? Why, why specifically that item? He told him, wait a second, let me finish what I was saying. I just started, I just mentioned one statement in the Gemara. There's more to it. 
this concept of, of Hashem only liking a person if the person is well-liked by people, this concept is actually a debate. In Perkei Avot, the Mishnah uses the exact wording that we just mentioned, <coughs> that kol sheruach habriot nocheheimenu, any person who is well-liked by people, ruach hamakom nocheheimenu. Any person who is not well liked by people, Hashem doesn't like him. That's the wording in Perkei Avot. There is a Yerushalmi where the Yerushalmi says just the opposite, just the exact opposite of this Gemara. The Yerushalmi says that any person who behaves in a manner where Hashem likes what he's doing, then automatically such a person is going to be well liked by people. And any person who behaves in a manner that people don't, that Hashem doesn't like what he's doing, in other words, he doesn't obey the Torah, he doesn't live by the way of the Torah, <coughs> then automatically people won't like him either. He won't find favor in the eyes of people either. But on this, along this line, the Shepetavka continued to explain, now about this debate in the Gemara, there is a story in the Gemara which seems to shed light on this debate as to which is the final opinion. Which do we favor? Which do we say is more true? If a person is liked by people, then Hashem will like him? Or if a person is liked by Hashem, then people will like him? The Gemara in Gitin tells us, that one day there were two rabbis sitting, Rav Huna and Rav Chizda was sitting, and a man walked by in front of them. The man's name was Geneva. He walked by in front of these two rabbis. One of these rabbis asked the other, what do we do? Are we supposed to stand up for this person? Because we know that he's a big Talmud Chacham. The Gemara uses the word Bar Uriyan. He's very learned. He's very knowledgeable in Torah. Or... Should we not stand up for him? Because we know that he's a Baal Machloket. We know that one of the leading rabbis at that time, his name was Mar Ukva, and the Gemara tells us in the beginning of Mesech de Gitin that this Mar Ukva had a lot of trouble from people in his community, that they were fighting with him, they were causing him all kinds of problems, they were making Machloket against him. One of the leaders of the controversy was this man, this Talmud Chacham called Geneva. So these two rabbis were sitting. This rabbi, Geneva, walked in front of them, <coughs> and they were discussing, should we stand up for him, because he is a big Talmud Chacham, or should we not stand up for him, because he's a Baal Machloket? The Gemara says, while they were talking, this man, Geneva, overheard some, some words of Torah, <coughs> and he quickly walked over to them, and he asked them, what do you, I hear you speaking words of Torah. Can you tell me what topic you are discussing? They said to him, yes, we were talking about the ruchot. We were talking about the winds, about the four winds. So the Gemara says that he told them, he, this person, Geneva, told them a chidush, an interesting item about the four winds, about the manner that the winds operate, the north wind, the south wind, 
an interesting item about this. The Shepetovka asked, we have a problem here. These rabbis seem to have lied. This man, Geneva, came over to them and he asked them, what were you talking about? If they didn't want to tell him, they should have said, we were discussing an item in Halakha, we were discussing a Hebrew law. Why did they say they were discussing the winds? What does this mean? The answer is that these two rabbis, their debate of whether to stand up for this person or not is actually contingent on this debate between the Pirkei Avot and the Yerushalmi. Because the wording in the Gemara is Kol Sheruach Habriot Nochehimenu Spirit, a person who is well-liked by people, that's called Ruach Habriot. Ruach means spirit, that the spirits of people are with him. Ruach also means winds. They, they were debating whether to stand up for him or not. Why? Because on one hand, Hashem likes what he's doing. He's a Talmud Chacham. He's one who learns a lot. But on the other hand, he's not well-liked by people because he's a Baal Machloket. He's a troublemaker. He's a person who goes around making, stirring up trouble, fights against people. So when they said that they were discussing Ruchot, what they were actually discussing was this debate in the Gemara as to which takes preference. A person who's liked by Hashem, a person who learns a lot of Torah, do we stand up for such a person? Even if he's not well-liked by people, he doesn't conduct himself nicely to people, or do we favor the issue of behaving towards people, in which case this person we would not be permitted to stand up for? And by the manner in which the discussion continued in the Gemara, the Shepetavka said, we see that the Gemara favored the first opinion. The fact that it's a person who's liked by people, that's one whom Hashem likes. And therefore, this one who's a Baal Machloket, we do not stand up for him. So the Shepetavka now said to the Noda Bihuda, therefore, people like yourselves, who closet yourselves and study Torah only for yourself, you don't share your Torah with the people, you don't go out and help bring people close to religion, you are ones whom if I were asked whether to stand up for you or not, the answer is no, definitely not. As soon as, <clears throat> as, soon as he mentioned this item, as soon as he mentioned this item, the Noda Bihuda said, I see that you're not coming looking for a donation. You're not coming here to collect money. You're coming to, you're looking for a fight. You're looking for trouble. Tell me what you want. What's your, what are you looking for? The Shepetovka smiled very calmly. And he said, fight? I'm not looking to fight. He said, you know what my, you know what my title is? I'm a problem solver. You can ask me any question you want, any problem you have, and I'll answer it. I'll solve any question, any riddle, any, anything that's ever troubled you in Torah and anything. Ask me and I'll give you the answer. <clears throat> the rabbi said, now this rabbi, the Noda Yudha, turned to his students and he said, I see that this person who appears, he came dressed up like a simple poor man, he's obviously a big Talmud Chacham. He began to address his students. The Shepetovka told him, that this is obviously your first question. Your first question is, how is it possible that I'm a Talmid Chacham and, a poor, and I'm also a poor man? Your question is, 
tzadik veralo. We have the Gemara discusses this, the question as to how it's possible for a person to be very religious, very good, and yet he lives a life of suffering. He lives a life of poverty and difficulty. How is this conceivable? If this person is doing what Hashem wants him to be doing, why shouldn't he be living a life of Riley? Why shouldn't things be very good for him? This rabbi, the Noda Yudas, smiled and said, yeah, that's, that's my first question. Go ahead, let's see, answer it. The Shepetovka told him, oh, that's a very simple question. No problem. He told him, the Gemara tells us in Nida, the Gemara says, Dara Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa, Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa once lectured that as soon as a child is conceived, at the moment that the droplet comes forth, this droplet goes before a certain angel in heaven called Lamed Laila, that angel. Hashem places this tipa before this angel, and this angel declares whether this, whether the human being that's going to come from this droplet, whether he's going to be rich or poor, whether he's going to be smart or dumb, and certain other items like that, that this angel declares at that point in time. The Shepetovka said, note, the angel does not declare whether this person is going to be a tzaddik or rasha. That the angel doesn't declare, and we know for a fact that that is not dependent in any way on any angel, because the Gemara says, Hakol bidei shamayim chutz shamayim. That that's something that depends purely on the person. Each and every person has free choice, no matter how he was created, no matter what kind of neshama he has, each and every person has free choice as to whether he wants to be religious or irreligious. So now it's very simple to understand. The second the child is conceived, Hashem declares whether the child is going to be rich or poor. Now that has no relationship with whether the person is going to be a tzaddik or rasha. So that's how it's possible for a person to be a tzaddik, to be very religious, and yet he's poor because when this droplet was first conceived, the malach declared that he's going to be poor. So it's not contingent in any way on how religious he is or religious he isn't. As soon as the Noda Biuda heard this interpretation, he said, I, can, I see immediately that this is not an ordinary human being whatsoever. This level of wisdom, the, the, the depth of knowledge in Torah that's being displayed here, is not that of a normal rabbi whatsoever. This is somebody that's like a malach elokin. However, he said to him, I still don't understand, because doesn't the Gemara say that everything depends on mazal, that everything is contingent on mazal. If a person has mazal, he's rich. If a person has mazal, he's poor. So therefore, it would seem to imply that regardless of what this angel says when the, when the droplet is first conceived, Still, the mazal can make it that the person should be rich or poor either way. So why do you say that it's dependent only on what this angel declares the moment the person is born? The Shepetovka said, that's your second question? Simple. Story in Gama, uh, there's a story in the Gemara that will answer that question very easily. The Gemara tells us in Psachim that one time a king and a queen were sitting and they were debating, they were discussing. What do kings and queens discuss? Do they discuss Torah? Do they discuss uh, computer technology? They were discussing which meat is tastier, which meat is better. 
goat's meat, the meat of a goat, or the meat of a sheep, the meat that comes from sheep. Which meat is superior? They were debating this. One said that sheep's meat is definitely preferred, it's definitely better. The other one said no, the meat of a goat is definitely higher quality, it's considered better quality. So one said to the other, well, we, uh, we know the best person to ask this question to. There's one person who knows the most about these items, that's the Kohen Gadol. The Kohen Gadol, who spends most of his time with sacrifices, goats and sheep and everything, he would be the one to know best which Hashem considers as being the one of the greatest quality. Is it goats or is it sheep? Now the word in the Gemara for goats is Gedi. A gad, or gedi, refers to goats. The word in the Gemara for sheep is imri. Imri is the Aramaic word for sheep. Imri also means to speak, to make a statement. This is what they debated. The Gemara says that they call, they summon the Kohen Gadol, and they asked him, could you tell us, you're obviously the one, the connoisseur on these items, could you tell us which is considered superior, goat or sheep? The Kohen Gadol answered that the sheep is superior. This is the story in the Gemara. <coughs> we mentioned this before. I want to reiterate for those who didn't hear it. Please excuse the difficulty in speaking because of the cold. We, it's not intentional. <coughs> the Shepetovka said this whole Gemara seems to be ridiculous in a sense. Chas v'shalom. They were discussing which meat is tastier, which meat is better. Why didn't they simply take a goat and slaughter it and a sheep and slaughter it and eat taste both and see which they like better. Or ask a hundred people, do a Pepsi Coke test, and check a hundred or a thousand people, see which do you like better, and get the statistics and find out exactly which is considered better. Why, in other words, why this whole debate? What was the debate here? What was the discussion? And they needed the Kohen Gadol to answer this question. They couldn't find a deeper question to ask the Kohen Gadol. <coughs> the Shepetovka said this is what, what, this is what they were really discussing. They were discussing, they were hinting to a discussion about this topic. The word gedi also refers to mazal in Aramaic. This same word, there's an expression in the Gemara, gad gedud, something like that which refers to mazal, a person's mazal in heaven. The word imri means a statement. They were discussing which is the priority, which is considered superior that which refers to mazal, a person's mazal in heaven. The word imri means a statement. They were discussing which is, which is the priority, which is considered superior. The fact that we know there exists a concept in heaven of mazal, one person has a mazal that he's going to be rich, one person has a mazal that he's going to be poor, which takes preference, the mazal or the statement of this angel, that whenever a Jewish child is about to be born, an angel actually makes a statement declaring which, which, what the child is going to be, rich or poor, exactly what the destiny of that child is going to be. This was the debate. They said, for such a question, this is really a deep question, we have to call the Tzadik Emet, the leading Tzadik, who, who is represented by the Kohen Gadol. He'll know the answer to this question, because he's the one who's permitted to go into the innermost chamber of the Bet HaMikdash. He's the one who has the closest relationship with Hashem, in a sense. He's the one who will know which, what actually goes on, what takes place in heaven. And when, we, when they asked him, and he said that it's the sheep 
that's considered the better, he was saying that the priority is still the statement. The word imri, which, which means sheep, also means statement. It's the statement of the malach that takes priority. So that therefore, if we see a tzaddik who's poor, it has nothing to do with his mazal, it's got nothing to do with a mazal, because ein mazal Yisrael, the Gemara says that the Jews are above mazal, mazal is something that applies to the goyim. <coughs> it means that when he was born, they declared that he should be poor, this is why he finds himself in a poor state, period, that's it, and it has nothing to do, it's no reflection whatsoever on his deeds. At this point in time, <coughs> At this point in time, the Noda Bihuda said to him, I ask you again, tell me what you're here for. What's your purpose? Can you tell me what, what do you want from me? The, the, the uh, Shepetovki answered him, I'm here to answer your questions. I'm here. My, I'm, I'm, my, my business is services. Anything, any question you have, anything you don't understand, simply ask me and I'll give you the answer. The Inodabi thought for a second and he said, fine, I got a good question for you. Could you define the word chasid? Could you explain to me a definition, a good definition for the word chasid? What does it mean? The Shepetovka thought for a second and he said, sure. A chassid means one who fixes things that need to be fixed. One who needs, one who fixes things that require repair. The Noda Bihuda looked at him. Now this Noda Bihuda was one who himself knew the entire 60 Gemarot, the, the Chumash, the Navi, the Shulchan Aruch. He had studied thousands of Sifarim. These were people, this was a person who could scan, in, in 30 seconds, could scan thousands of pages of Torah and look for every place in the Torah where the word chasid is mentioned and see that there's no application whatsoever of this word chasid referring to fixing. So as soon as the Shepetovka said this, he laughed. He cracked up, he started laughing, and he turned to his students and he said, isn't that hysterical? That's a funny interpretation. I never heard that one. Chassid means one who fixes things. And he turned to the Shepetovka and he said to him, Can you tell me what your basis is for this? Do you have a basis in the, do you have a source in the Torah from which you know this, that the definition of the word Chassid means one who fixes? <coughs> the Shepetovka said, Sure. It's, it's a whole discussion in the Gemara. There's a whole Gemara that speaks about this. <coughs> then Oda Biuda looked at all of his students, and he said to the Shepetovka, I want you to know, you see these 60 students sitting here? Each one of them, you can test them. Pick any page in the Gemara. You say page 121 in Baba Batra, 13 lines down, and he'll start reading for you, no problem. Each one of them is a master. He knows at least one entire Gemara by heart, word for word. If maybe you tell us which Gemara it's in, I'll have one of them do a scan, do a check on it, we'll see if it's there, or maybe you're using a different edition that we're using. Maybe you have a qualified, maybe the Hasidim have a different version of the Gemara, maybe it's in your version, it's not in ours. The Shepetovka said, ha just to make it easy for you, it happens to be in the Gemara Berachot. 
the first Gemara and Shas. That's where this whole discussion is, and that's where the definition of the word Chassid is. Now, this Rosh Yeshiva, the Noda Bihuda himself, it just happened to be that this was the Gemara that he himself was learning at that time. He was learning Berachot at that time, <coughs> and he quickly, again, in seconds, he simply scanned the 64 or 65 pages in Berachot, going line by line in his mind, looked, he saw the word Hasid mentioned in that Gemara once or twice, in no way related to fixing anything, and uh, he said, I give up. Again, sarcastically, I give up. I challenge you. Let's see you explain this in any way. Shepetovka said, this is so simple. The Gemara says that there's a pasuk in Tehilim where David HaMelech says to Hashem, Shamra nafshi ki chasid ani. Hashem, please protect me. Why? Because I am a chasid. I am a very righteous person. So the Gemara says, what was David HaMelech referring to when he called himself Chassid? What did he mean? The Gemara mentions three items. Number one, he said, Hashem, you know what, what, what I'm righteous, you know what I'm special in? You see all the other kings, they like to sleep late, they enjoy sleeping 10 hours, 15 hours, a luxurious type of sleep. By me, I never get one whole night's sleep. I always divide the night in half. The Pasuk says, David HaMelech used to wake up every single night for Chatzot and learn Torah and pray for, the, pray for the Bet HaMikdash, all of those things. He said, this is one of the things that would classify me as Chassid. <coughs> A second item, he said, all the other kings like to keep themselves immaculate, very clean, very dainty. They don't like to touch dirty items. And by me, my days and nights are spent purifying wives to their husbands, having to check bidikot to look at the blood, the stains on the clothing, those types of items to purify women. David HaMelech said, my hands are wet with blood and filth. This is the wording that he used. <clears throat> with blood from examining chas uh, uh, children that pass away at that early age, before 30 days, to see how long the woman is tamay, different things like that. That's the second item that the Gemara says, that he said that he is a chasid. And the third item the Gemara says is <clears throat> that he mentioned the fact that every single thing that I do, I always check with my rabbi, Miffy Bullshit. I never make a move in religion without first checking with my rabbi, Miffy Bullshit. And then the Gemara says, by the way, his rabbi's name was not Miffy Bullshit. His rabbi's real name was Ish Bullshit. He was called Miffy Bullshit. Miffy Bullshit was a nickname used in a respectful manner, in a nice way. <coughs> This is the statement in the Gemara, that David HaMelech said to Hashem, Hashem, please protect me because I am a Hasid. I am a Hasid. And he gave these three reasons as to why he's a Hasid. The Shepetavka turned to the Noda Bihuda and he said to him, this was all David HaMelech. David HaMelech, who's such a big Sadiq and everything, this was all he could come up with for what he does. Big deal. He gets up Chatzot. 
How many Jews do we have who are simple Jews, not big tzaddikim, and yet they get up every night for chatzot, they pray to Hashem, they study Torah. That doesn't classify you as being a super... This was David HaMelech, one of the biggest tzaddikim of all time. This was all he could say for himself, that he gets up in the middle of the night and he learns Torah, or that he dirties, he, he checks bidikot. Every rabbi of every city has this type of thing. Every rabbi who gets a salary of $50 or $100 or $1,000 a week is involved in these kinds of questions. A woman, whether she's Tamei or not, Nida, all of these questions. What was David Amelech saying that he's so fantastic in doing this? <clears throat> and thirdly, any qu- he doesn't make a move in religion without asking his rabbi. The answer is, does he know what he's doing or not? If he knows what he's doing, then there would be no necessity to ask his rabbi. If he doesn't know, then what's the big deal that he asks his rabbi? Of course he has to ask his rabbi. If you don't know a halacha, you have to ask your rabbi, no matter who you are. And again, and, and fourthly, why does the Gemara bother? In the middle of this whole conversation, the Gemara mixes in that his rabbi's name was not Mifi Boshet, it was Ish Boshet. What's going on here? What is the Gemara referring to? What's this whole discussion about? The Shepetovka said, let me teach you the Gemara. Let me explain to you what the Gemara means. We know that the Gemara tells us in another place, in Eruvin and in other places, that any Jew who says that King David, Chas committed a sin, that Jew is, is missing some screws. That Jew is a little crazy, because David HaMelech is registered as one of the greatest Sadikim. The Arizal says that out of all the different tzaddikim from the beginning of time, David HaMelech is unique in that he's one of the only neshamot that ever came to the world that never had to come back begilgul. He never had to return begilgul, implying that he had nothing to fix. Once he was on this world one time, he never had to return to do any fixing for anything. This is how super spectacular a tzaddik he was. So if it appears to us that David HaMelech did any type of sin, you should know that it's, it's in, on a very, very high level and it's something that we don't understand. The fact is that he was a super, super tzaddik emet. However, the Gemara says that there were certain things that, that came out of this act of taking Batsheva. The fact is she was not a married woman at the time because at that time when the Jews... When the Jewish soldiers used to go out to war, each one was required to give his wife a divorce beforehand, so that if he didn't return from battle, his wife was considered as divorced. Me'ikara, from the beginning, from before he went out to war, so Batsheva was not a married woman. And as to the fact that he murdered her husband, Uriah, he did it rightfully because Uriah acted disrespectfully to King David. He disobeyed a command of King David, plus he referred to King David as being, he referred to Yoav, the general, in a very high, eloquent way in front of King David, which was a disrespectful thing again. So he was a moded b'malchut, where the penalty is death. And the Gemara says, another question that you might ask is <coughs> the fact that even if Uriah did deserve a death penalty, still, death penalty, trial, a judge, a trial, this was not a case where you just kill someone in a second, he does a sin, you kill him. If a Jew commits a sin against the king, he must be tried in a court, we must see was he warned properly and everything, and then he's put to death. David HaMelech, in a sense, acted in haste that he just had this person put to death without asking the Sanhedrin, without asking anything. 
These are the three outstanding items that the Gemara points out. <coughs> the fact that King David, ah, a fourth item, the Gemara says that King David at that time should not, the fact that he was sleeping at a time when he shouldn't have been or in a way that he shouldn't have been, that's also what led him. He was walking around at night and he was able to see this woman, Batsheva, at a time when he shouldn't have seen her. That also was part of what led him into this act, into this problem. <coughs> so the Shepetovka said, now we could understand the interpretation of the Gemara. What were the items that David HaMelech seemingly committed a sin in? Number one, he was sleeping when he shouldn't have been, or he was up when he shouldn't have been awake. He, he, was, he messed up the time for sleeping versus the time for being awake. The second item was <coughs> that he put somebody, that he separated a husband from his wife, the fact that he caused this separation between Uriah. Uriah, the, the law is that when a man returns from a journey, that night he's required to, to be with his wife. That's one of the mizvot that he's required to, uh, to perform in being together with his wife when he returns from a trip, from having been away for a period of time. King David commanded Uriah on the night that he returned from war to stay away from his home, to sleep right outside the palace, not to go home to his wife. So he separated a husband from his wife. And the third thing, the fact that he, he, didn't, he didn't ask the Sanhedrin their opinion before putting this person to death, the Shepetovka said that this is what the Gemara in Berachot is explaining. When David HaMelech said to Hashem, Shamra nafshi ki chasidani Hashem, protect me because I am Hasid, David HaMelech was going to show Hashem how the word Hasid means that I fixed, I have already fixed anything that I might have done wrong, I fixed it completely. What does the Gemara say I might have done wrong? I might have been sleeping when I shouldn't have been, or I might have been awake when I should have been sleeping. Hashem, look at me now. Every single night I wake up for Chatzot, a time when all the other kings are busy sleeping and enjoying themselves. I wake up, and in this manner he was rectifying the crime of changing his Mishkav. His Mishkav was the way it shouldn't have been. Secondly, what crime did I commit? I separated a husband from his wife. This is why my teshubah for this is that my whole work is involved in bringing together husband and wife and checking out these questions and being very knowledgeable in the laws of Nidah, these questions of Bidikot, being able to be matir and isha labala, being able to show when a woman is permitted to be with her husband. The third crime, the fact that I might have acted in haste in putting this person to death rather than asking the Sanhedrin, this is why David HaMelech said I took upon myself a vow that from here on in I would never make a move in religion without asking my rabbi first. And note, he mentioned his rabbi's name, Mephibosheth, he mentioned his rabbi's name. You might have a question, if King David had such respect for his rabbi, is a student ever permitted to mention his rabbi's name? So this is why the Gemara adds that you should know that his, this was not his rabbi's real name. His rabbi's real name was Ishboshet. Mephibosheth was a respectful nickname that people used to call him by. This is why David HaMelech was permitted to call him by this name. So the Shepetovka said, from this Gemara we see clearly that what's the definition? What's the true definition of Hasid? One who fixes 
whatever needs fixing. In the case of Damir Melech, the Gemara says that these were things that might have needed fixing. He used the word chasid about himself, showing that he had fixed all of these items. At this, the, the Noda Bihuda and his students turned white. They saw the depth of understanding that this rabbi, the Shepetovka, had in interpreting these Gemarot in a way that they had never dreamed of looking at the Gemara in this way and understanding it in such a deep way. They were just flabbergasted. They didn't know what, they had nothing to say whatsoever. Again, now, the Noda Bihuda asked the, the Shepetovka, could you tell me again? I'm asking you one last time. Tell me what you're here for. What do you want? What? Tell me exactly what you want from me. The Shepetovka said, now I offer you a real challenge. I dare you to ask me any question, any, any chapter in the entire Shas, any discussion in the entire 60 Gemarot, you can ask me in one second, pick a, pick a page, and I'll give you a whole lecture, a, a, a lecture for a few hours on that subject. Now, those who are familiar with the manner of learning in the yeshivot, in the Litvish yeshivot especially, a rabbi never gives a shiur off the cuff. The types of shiurim they give, the rabbi usually has to prepare it very well to investigate the rishonim, the achronim, the different opinions on the Gemara, and it's not the kind of thing that you do spontaneous. By them, a rabbi never gives a shiur musar or that type of shiur. It's always something that requires a lot of preparation. The fact that he made mention this statement... I'll try to summarize a little of what we had last. Okay, let's go. Ready? All systems go. Those those that weren't here last week might be at a slight disadvantage, but we'll try to make it up as much as possible just to have a quick review of what we covered last week and to continue from there. We mentioned that this shiur is fantastic in a certain way because we find the type of meeting that we're discussing here takes place on very, very rare occasions, that you have two very great tzaddikim, two very great talmidei chachamim from two different corners of the world, two different ends of the world, not physically, but spiritually. One, of an, a very great leader among the Hasidim, his name was Harav Yaakov Shamshon Mishepetavka, who had a close friendship with Rabbeinazal. He's mentioned Rabbeinazal Sfarim, and Rabbeinazal was very, 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 spoke about him very, very highly. And the second is known in the Shulchan Aruch as the Noda Bihuda. That's the name of one of his most famous Sfarim. His name was Rabbi Cheskel Landau, that was his name. And he lived around the time of Rabbi Nezal, and he was a fantastic Talmud Chacham, Gaon, one of the greatest Geonim of his generation, one of the rabbis of the Shulchan Aruch. And we mentioned last week that at that period of time in Jewish history, this was shortly after the revelation of the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh, at that point in time, there were many rabbis who, because of previous experiences that were that were very, very rough in terms of people who presented themselves as the Mashiach, other things like that, <coughs> which caused tremendous catastrophe among the Jews. Because of that item, 
they felt immediately that whenever they saw any new leader that seemed to be presenting any new attitude in religion, they were immediately negative. They assumed right away, and sometimes incorrectly, that it was probably along these lines, and right away it's pasul, it's asur, it's taref, it's no good. Now we find some interesting stories. Number one, just to, to go off on a tangent for a second, we find this type of attitude many times in certain ways helped to bring people who were very, very far from religion back from religion. I know that one of the stories that we were zochet to hear from Rebel Yechayim Zechet Tzadik Levracha, he told about a, a person whom he saw with his own eyes, a person who lived in Russia, who was so far from religion that this person, he, was, he lived among, in a town with religious people, whenever he would hear them talking about books that you're not supposed to read, be it pornographic type of books or philosophy, anything that was very, very bad, as soon as he would hear something like that, right away he would investigate where these books ought to be gotten, and he'd ask for a set, give me the whole set, whatever it was. This person, one point in time, there was some type of a book fair that was taking place in Russia at the time, and there was Sfarim of Rabbeinazal being sold at this occasion. He picked up one of these books, and one of the religious people in the city walked by and saw him holding this book, and he told him, you should know that this book, uh, Jews, we, we don't read these books. They're considered so bad that we're not supposed to read these books. He said, yeah, you mean it? You know, it's really that bad? He said, yeah, definitely. Right away, he took a look to see if there's an address in the back where he can write to, and he wrote to those who lived in Oman at the time to mail him a whole set, any books that they have like this, he wants to get hold of it and study it. And Rebel Yechaim Zechet Tzadik told over that a few months later this person came to Oman, he moved to Oman, and he became one of the outstanding religious people there, one of the outstanding Hasidim in Russia itself. So we see that this type of attitude, but the fact is, that the attitude, the, the hate, and the negative attitude towards these Sepharim was so outstanding to such an extent that just as we find in the case of the Rambam, who was a very great Gaon, Tamid Chacham, and who is one of the most outstanding pillars of the Shulchan Aruch, and yet we find the Shulchan Aruch itself tells us that at one point in time he, w- he wrote certain Sifarim, which all the rabbis that lived in his generation all agreed that these Sifarim were not permitted to be publicized, and on the contrary, they could do tremendous, any person studying these Sifarim could do, it could do tremendous harm to them. We find a statement by Rabbi Natanzal. Rabbi Natanzal once said, People said over in the name of the Rambam Zal that one of his Sifarim, one of his books on philosophy, we don't even mention, our Rabbi Shalom never mentioned the name of this book. He would just refer to it by the initials, the Sefer Mem Nun, which stands for the two words that make up the title of that book. <coughs> in English it's known as the Guide to the Perplexed, but we, we even avoid mentioning the name of that Sefer, it's told that the Rambam said about this book that out of a thousand people that will read this book, 999 of them, it won't benefit them. One will read this and he'll be intelligent enough to understand all the questions and the answers and for him it'll do him tremendous good. 
Rabbi Natanzal, who was a person who had the most outstanding Shmirat Halashon conceivable. Rabbi Natanzal, who would never comment negatively about anything that was slightly questionable as to whether a Jew should comment negatively about it. Rabbi Natanzal said about this statement, the 999 we have seen. The one we haven't seen yet. Since the time of the Rambam, who lived in the 1200s, in the 1100s and 1200s, we've seen thousands of people who have read these books, and not only has it not done them any good, but chas v'shalom, it put, it injected doubt in their minds, and it made it very, very difficult for them to maintain the same purity and emunah that they had before reading these books. Whereas to see a person who was able to enter into this study of philosophy and come out ahead, come out gaining from this, benefiting from this, this he said we never saw. And we find again one of these students of the Baal Shem Tov, the uncle of Rabbein Zal, the Boruch Mezhebish Zal, he once made a comment, there's a pasuk in the Torah which the Gemara quotes about the study of philosophy. The Gemara says, Rabbi Zal used to refer to this as a one-way ticket to Gehinom. Where do we get this term, one-way ticket? The Pasuk says, Kal ba'eha lo yeshuvun. That all of those who enter into this study, this study of philosophy, asking the wrong types of questions about Hashem, chas v'shalom, those that enter into this will not return. Now we know that these books, in Hebrew, they're called Sfarim Chitzonim, Sfarim Chitzonim, in Yiddish, the term that's used for these books is they're called bichlach. A bichl refers to a book that's not, we're not, when we're not referring to a respectable type of book, we call it a bichl. The word Reboruch Meshmerzal, Rabbeinazal's uncle, once made a, a joke in a sense, but this joke has tremendous validity to it, that the, the word bichl, Bet Yud Chaf Lamed makes up the Rashi Tavot of the Pasuk Kol Ba'eha Lo Yishivun. Any of those that enter into reading these types of books, Chas Shalom, this is a one-way ticket in a downward direction whereby it becomes very, very difficult for a person to return to Hashem. Because the whole concept of returning to Hashem, the base is Emunah. Rabbein Azal says, Ha'ikar Hi Emunah. The Yisod, the foundation, depends on certain things that we don't understand. You tell a person who has committed a billion sins, he's angered Hashem in every way conceivable, you tell a person like that that there's a, there exists a potential for him to become a big tzaddik, he'll say, prove it to me. Logically, show me how it's possible. You tell me I commit a sin, I've destroyed thousands of worlds, show me how it's conceivable by me just saying, I'm sorry, that's going to correct everything. And with logic, it's very hard to prove. It requires, many times, it requires emunah. A person has to have emunah in the infinite kindness of Hashem, in the fact that if a Jew would, ex- would use every ounce of energy that he possesses and every ounce of brains to attempt to commit every sin that exists an infinite number of times, don't forget, human beings are limited. We can't do it infinite number of times. <coughs> We're limited to a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand times that we could commit even the worst sin, and yet we believe that the kindness of Hashem is infinite. No matter how far you're going to go, Hashem's kindness extends further than that and able to pull the person back. But it's dependent on emunah. All of this is based on a foundation of emunah, which these books of philosophy tend to weaken or to chas v'shalom destroy in a person. 
This is with regards to books of philosophy. And note, this is brought clearly as Halachan Shulchan Aruch. This is something that Rebbe Zal stressed many times. The fact that we know that there's a rule, those that are familiar with Shulchan Aruch, there are two sets of rabbis that are discussed in the Shulchan Aruch. One set is called the Rishonim, the earlier rabbis, such as Rashi Kadosh, the Rif, the Rambam, the Raivid, those who lived approximately from the year 900 through the year 1300, 1400, that period of time, the Achronim, which picks up from about the year 1400 and on, going further, including the Arizal, many like that, those are categorized within the group called Achronim. Now we know that you just about never find a case in Shulchan Aruch where an Achron will debate with Erishon, he'll counter any statement by Erishon, because these two are considered as far apart as the rabbis of the Gemara, in a sense, from us. That that much of a distance. And we find that if an Achron, if one of these later rabbis ever wants to question a statement made by one of the earlier rabbis, the Rishonim, he does it with fantastic caution, and with the utmost of respect, and he says, I know that my infantile mind, compared to this very great rabbi, Rabbi, there's no way in the world for me to think that I could understand his words, but if I were to attempt to understand on my low level, this difficulty seems to exist, and it's surely a shortcoming in my wisdom. This is the manner in which they speak. And yet we find one very, very clear case where the Shulchan Aruch in Yoredea, where it speaks about the laws related to magic, performing magic, me'onen, mechashef, where it speaks about using amulets on Shabbat, we find one case where the Vilna Gaon, who was not a leader among the Hasidim, this was one of the most outstanding rabbis among the Mitnagdim, one of the most fantastic among the Achronim, the Vilna Gaon writes very, very clearly in the strongest terms conceivable, because the Rambamzal in one place over there comments that this concept of believing in amulets and Shedim and things like that, we don't really accept that. This is what the Rambam Zal writes, and the Vilna Gaon writes that note, no Jew should dare accept this statement in any way whatsoever because the vast majority of all the rabbis that lived during the time of the Rambam completely disregarded and ignored and battled against any of these statements that the Rambam Zal made related to faith in these concepts, Shedim, Kimeot, all of these types of things. And he said, the Vilna Gaon writes that we are Ma'aminim Bnei Ma'aminim. We are Jews who have faith. We are the children of Avraham Yitzchak Yaakov. We note that the whole Gemara is filled with stories about Malachim, about Shedim, about rabbis who were able to create, by mentioning a name of Hashem, they were able to create a cow, they were able to create a human being. And therefore, our faith in these items is unquestionable, and anything that the Rambamzal said about these items was only based on the fact that he accidentally got involved in the study of philosophy, which took him off the correct path in these items. 
Now note, this is one extremely exceptional case where we find an Achron speaking out so blastingly at Erishon, and again, the only reason why he would dare to do it is not, this isn't one against one, an Achron against Erishon, the Vilna Gaon is bringing out that this opinion, the Rambam, who is so accepted worldwide as an authority in Shulchan Aruch in most items, anything, any statement that he makes that's tainted based on his knowledge of philosophy, that's to be disregarded, ignored completely, and to stay away from it with a thousand-foot pole. As far away as we could stay from that, that's what we tend to do. However, entering into a different world completely, these sefarim that were written by the by the Gdolei HaChasidim, by the Baal Shem Tov and his followers, the Arizal, the, the Sfarim that were based on the Sifrei Kabbalah, on the Zohar Kadosh, on the words of the Gemara, on the concepts of true faith in Hashem and Sadikim. those Sifarim, on the contrary, those Sifarim are the ones that inject the maximum emunah into a person and fear of Hashem and respect for rabbis, the, the most important ingredients in making a religious Jew. So we mentioned that at this point in time, there was tremendous conflict and controversy between the Hasidim and the Mitnagdim, and the Mitnagdim sort of assumed that any person who sided with the Hasidim, automatically we could assume that he was very much not knowledgeable in Gemara, in Shulchan Aruch, and in the deep, deep study of Gemara that the Mitnagdim were noted for at that time. We mention that this very, very outstanding Talmud Chacham Gaon Tzadik, Binoda Bihuda, when he heard of the revelation of the Sefer Toldot Yaakov Yosef, which was a Sefer that was written by one of the closest students to the Baal Shem Tov, as soon as he heard about this Sefer being revealed in the world and it was being spread, he told his students immediately, without looking at this Sefer, he said that this Sefer should be burned. Period. That this Sefer, these Svarim that are put out by these people, who he assumed were people who were far from Torah, far from Shulchan Aruch, were ones who were just interested in making a big name for themselves, Chas Shalom, he assumed immediately that this Sefer should be burned. And as we're going to see later in the story, the type of disrespect that he himself showed to this Sefer. But in any case, as soon as he made this statement, this rabbi, the Toldot Yaakov Yosef, who had written this Sefer, who had passed away at the time that his Sefer was being printed and published and spread out, this rabbi came to one of his students in a dream, as we mentioned last week, and he told him, I want you to take up my part. I want you to go to this rabbi and to show him the greatness of my Sefer and the greatness of our teachings. This rabbi undertook this job immediately. He dressed up as a poor man, and he came to visit this Noda Bihuda. And last week we discussed some of their initial debates and discussions where he began to speak in a very cute way, in a sarcastic manner, to the Noda Bihuda, testing him every inch of the way, mentioning different items from the Gemara or different explanations of Gemarot, which the Noda Bihuda was not familiar with. Not that he was not familiar with the Gemara. We mentioned that the Noda Bihuda himself certainly could read the entire Shas by heart, word for word, line for line. We mentioned that he had a group of students, 60 students. Each one of them was nicknamed a different Gemara. This one was called Psachim. This one was called Nida. Whatever name the student had, it meant that that Gemara he knew 
completely by heart. Word for word, he knew that Gemara cold, much better than any of the greatest rabbis that we have today would know the Gemara to that extent of depth and clarity. This rabbi, whom we're going to refer to as the Shepetovka, the one from the students of the Baal Shem Tov, he came and he began mentioning different items and embarrassing the Noda Bihuda in a sense before his students in showing him different items that he wasn't as far as his attitude in how he treated a poor man in how much he closeted himself in Torah avoiding the actual performance of mitzvot on a public level going out and spreading religion among the people among the more common people and we had left off at a certain point in the story <coughs> where just at this point each time they entered into a short discussion the Noda Bihuda would ask him, I want you to tell me what you came here for, because the Shepetovka would not reveal to him. He told him, at first he told him, I'm coming to collect money, I'm a poor man, I need money. And each time he was acting in this manner, sarcastic and testing and leading him on, each time the Noda Bihuda would stop and say, tell me what, who you are and what your purpose is in being here. The point in the story where we left off, the Noda Bihuda asked this question again. He told him, tell me who you are and what you're here for. And at this point, the Shepetovka told him, I'm here, I've come here to lecture, to give a shiur. Then other Yudai asked him, fine. In other words, by this point, they were convinced that he was capable of giving a shiur, very capable. So they told him, fine, tell us what topic you would like to lecture on. Now, those that are familiar with the type of learning that takes place in the big yeshivot, the Litvashi yeshivot, or the yeshivot that are more known today, well known in the world, the type of learning that's done is where you can have a class of students who are 20, 30 years old, who are very knowledge, knowledgeable in a Gemara, and within a period of a year, they can cover 10 pages of Gemara, 12 pages. These students, whom if they would want, they could cover 10 pages a day, but the type of learning that's emphasized in the Shivot is learning for depth. Learning, taking a Gemara and analyzing it with Rashi, with Tosafot, with all the Mefarashim, all the commentaries, and playing one commentary against the other, trying to see the depth, trying to see any places where there's conflict within a commentary, or where it seems that there's a Machloket, Rashi, Tosafot, trying to show how it's not really a Machloket, and delving very, very deeply into a short passage of Gemara. And the rabbis that lecture in this manner, usually the preparation for a shiur requires a day or two of preparation, 10, 15 hours to prepare this type of shiur in familiarizing yourself with all the different 10, 20, 30 commentaries on a Gemara, the deep commentaries, and showing the different interrelationships between them, how which, which ones support each other, which ones conflict with each other. So they were used to this type of shiur. This Shepetovka told them, fine, I'm prepared to give a lecture, you tell me what topic you want me to lecture on. And this immediately seemed hysterical to them because their style of shiur was not where you could tell a person, pick a topic and, and start talking about it. They're used to a type of shiur where the rabbi, the rabbi picks the topic, not the student, and he spends a few days preparing it thoroughly, and then he's prepared to lecture on it. The Shepetovka told them, pick any topic you want. 
they they all smile. They said, finally, we're going to get him back. We're going to show that th- this is just about impossible for a rabbi to be able to do this. And they told him, fine. They said, let's just pick up whatever Gimana is on the table now. Let's pick it up. Let's open it to a page. Whatever page we open up, whatever topic is being discussed on that page, that's the topic you'll give a shoot on. They picked up a Gemara. The Gemara that they happened to pick up was the largest Gemara in Shas, the Gemara Baba Batra, which deals with all types of very, very complex laws related to property, property ownership, and two people living next to each other, and selling, buying and selling property, fields, walls, boundaries, all types of complex laws such as this, Chosh and Mishpat, which is the most difficult section of the Shulchan Aruch. But within this Gemara, as in all Gemarot, there are some short passages of stories that relate to stories or agarata, lighter type of Gemara. The page that they happened to open up to was a page that dealt with this much lighter type of Gemara, which these mitnagdim, when they learn in the yeshivot, generally... This Gemara, they pass over very quickly because it doesn't involve halacha. It, it doesn't, in an obvious manner, it doesn't have technical application in Hebrew law. So they sort of assume that that's not as important as the Gemara that does involve halacha, Hebrew law, and that applies to us in practical application today. Whereas, whereas the Gemara itself says, the Midrash tells us, that if a person wants to become religious, if a person wants to develop any feeling of Yirat Shemayim, fear of Hashem, which we know is the whole purpose of learning, we say every morning, Reshit Chochmah Yirat Hashem. What's the climax that a Jew can achieve in knowledge of Hashem, where he becomes so knowledgeable that he doesn't have to fear Hashem, that he's, he's equal to Hashem? The answer is Has Shalom. The climax, the highest level of knowledge of depth of knowledge that a Jew can achieve in coming close to Hashem is where he develops a very, very simple fear of Hashem. As we find the Torah tells us about Rabbi Akiva, that the most the climax of the life, the whole life of this Rabbi Akiva, whom the Gemara tells us was the only rabbi who equaled Moshe Rabbeinu in wisdom, you would picture his life ending off in presenting some type of 10,000 page of theological, philosophical, uh, physiological, who knows what type of complex uh, uh, doctrine of of teaching, of, of knowledge. And yet we find the life of Rabbi Akiva ended in the most simple manner, conceivable in a sense, whereby he was tested, his faith in Hashem was being tested, he was being asked, to die for the kavod of Hashem, and he passed away with the words, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. This rabbi, you would picture at the time of his passing, he would be reciting the most complicated Yehudim, Kabbalistic Yehudim of Shemot and everything, and this was the peak of his achievement in serving Hashem, was to be zocher, to say the Shema Yisrael on a higher level with more fear of Hashem and with more faith in Hashem than any other Jew at that time or possibly almost in the entire world. So we find here also, as soon as they open to this Gemara and the Shepetovka said, fine, I'm going to lecture on this, immediately they all began laughing. Lecture? on a story in the Gemara that's hysterical. In other words, these are things that in our yeshivot we pass over very quickly. He said, fine, I'm going to lecture, and I guarantee you that none of you here are going to get bored. You're all going to have what to listen to. 
And he said, as a matter of fact, I think that the, the, the depth that we're going to go into, I think would be only right. How about if we transfer this discussion at this time, point in time, they were in the home of the Noda Behuda. He said, how about if we go to the big synagogue, the big shul in the city of Prague at that time, and we'll carry on the lecture over there. This rabbi, the Noda Behuda, when he heard this, he started getting a little bit scared because he figured regardless of what happens here, if this person makes a fool of himself in a sense, still it's going to be embarrassing for the Noda Behuda that he brought him into the big shul, the whole city will gather together to hear this, and, uh, and they'll blame him for it possibly. On the other hand, if somehow, some way this turns out as, as a success, again, it's going to be a victory for the Hasidim in a sense, and it's going to make them look cheaper. So the Inodim said, I'll tell you what, how about if we just, rather than travel anywhere, we're all here together, myself, my 60 students and you, this should be a nice enough forum for you to lecture. Go ahead, start, start lecturing now. And the topic that they were up to in the Gemara is the, a statement in the Gemara where the Gemara says, the Gemara talks about ten levels of hardness, toughness that exists in the world. The Gemara says that one of the most, one of the toughest items that exists is a mountain, har, a mountain. The Gemara says what's more tough than a mountain? Steel is more tough than a mountain. Why? Proof is that if we want to chop into a mountain, if we want to dig within a mountain, we take instruments that are made of metal, barzel, and with that we can cut down pieces of a mountain or possibly an entire mountain. So we see that har is kasher, a mountain is powerful, barzel is kasher mimenu, barzel is tougher than that. Metal is even more tough than a mountain. What's tougher than metal? Fire is tougher than metal, because as mighty as metal is, <coughs> with fire we can manipulate it, we can melt it down, and we can flex it, we can make it any way we want, we can move it any way we want. So we find that fire is more powerful than metal. What's more powerful than fire? Water. Water is capable of overwhelming and, and extinguishing fire. What's more powerful than water? The clouds. The clouds are able to contain within themselves all the water, huge, huge masses of water. So in a sense, the cloud shows a superiority over the water in that the cloud incorporates within itself these huge bodies of water. What's more powerful than clouds? Wind, ruach, because the wind manipulates the clouds, it tosses the clouds from one end of the world to the other, moves them any which way it wants. And the Gemara continues to show ten levels of kasher, of power. They heard this, and this all sounded amusing to them. This is the type of Gemara that they would pass over very quickly, because, it does, again, it doesn't have any technical application halacha. This Shepetovka began to lecture, what is har? What does the term mountain refer to? And he picked one of the most difficult chapters in Shas, in the entire Gemara, which speaks about certain laws, technical laws related to a mountain, and he asked about 30 very, very deep questions in Halakha related to mountains. Then he said, when the Gemara says that what's more powerful, what's more powerful, what's able to break a mountain? What can break a mountain is metal. The term when a Jew has a question, the Hebrew word for question is kushia. 
Kushia means question. Kushia also means hard, tough, difficult, because it's a difficulty in thought. What's the Hebrew word for an answer to a question? An answer is called a terutz. Terutz means answer. Why? Litaretz means to break. Literally, it means to break, because if kushia, question is hard, and the answer breaks the question. It breaks down the question. It makes it, it breaks it down to make it much easier, surmountable. So this rabbi, the Shepetovka, asked about 30 super difficult, deep, complicated, halachic questions about a mountain. And then he took a different section of Shas completely, where it speaks about laws related to metal. And from that section of Shas, he answered all the 30 questions in halacha related to mountain. Then he took the next level, fire. He began to ask questions about metal, 30 questions in halacha, very complicated questions about metal, and he gave the answers to them from different sections in Shas, where the Gemara discusses all types of halachot related to fire, the laws of Havdalah, candles of Shabbos, all types of different things related to fire. With this, he answered those questions, and he continued this shiur for a period of 10 days straight. He gave these 60 students and the rabbi a 10-day shiur, covering, spanning, incorporating just about the entire shas, the entire shulchan aruch, showing how it was all hinted to in this simple statement of the Gemara about mountains and metal is tougher than that and fire is tougher than that. He used that as a base to take off from from which to explode the entire Shas and show, bring the questions and answers from all different avenues of Shas and use them as a solution for this. By the time he got finished with this shiur, none of them needed any convincing as to what his level was compared to theirs. And at this point, the Noda Bihuda stood up and he said to the Shepetovka, I beg of you, please tell me who you are and what your purpose was in coming here. Whatever it is, I'm ready to listen to anything you want. I'm, I'm available. At this point in time, the Shepetovka told, told him, let me tell you exactly who I am. My rabbi was the Toldot Yaakov Yosef. My rabbi had many, many students. Of his students, his students were basically broken out into three groups. The better students, the middle students, and the lower students. My classification among the students of my rabbi, I was in the lower echelons of the group. I was among the younger students in the class. So based on what I just taught you, you have to sit down and start trying to imagine what the medium students of that class were like. If I was from the lower students, you have to try to imagine in your minds, if you possibly can, what the medium students in that class were like. And once you figure that out, then try to imagine what the best students in my class were like. try to imagine what the rabbi of our class, what type of level of Kiddushah he was on. And his sefer, you said that should be burnt? At that minute, Vinoda Bihuda picked up his feet from under the table, 
under his feet was this Sefer Toldot Yaakov Yosef. His despise, again, this wasn't something that was done maliciously, it was based on an impression, a mistake, among many rabbis at that time who assumed that the Hasidim were Shalom following in the path of these false Mashiachs. And because they wanted to make so sure that their students would not chas v'shalom look into these books, they showed such obvious disdain for these books that when he would give a shiur as his footstool, he used this sefer, Toldot Yaakov Yosef. So immediately he moved back, he picked it up from under his feet, he wiped it off, and he kissed this sefer in front of all of his students. And at that point in time, he told him that... I'll never, ever speak negatively in any way about these, about these rabbis. So they began to talk, at this point in time, they began to talk friendly. And the Nodabi Huda said, now that you've told me about yourself and the other students in the class, could you possibly tell me something fantastic about your rabbi? I'm sure having had a rabbi like this, I could imagine what kind of things you... Tell me something great about your rabbi. The Shepetovka told him, miracles, I, I don't really want to get involved in discussing different miracles that he did. There's one specific miracle that happened that I saw with my own eyes that I would want to tell you about because there's an important message in this. Because this is the point that we find our rabbi, Zichronot Vracha, Rabbi Rosenfeld, Zichronot Vracha, this was the, the underlying point in all of his shiurim was stressing the teaching of Emunat Chachanim, the super, super faith in the words of the rabbis of the Gemara, the rabbis of the Shulchan Aruch, and even the rabbis of our generations, the, the leading rabbis of the Tzadikim in Yerushalayim, the leading Tzadikim in our generations, the type of faith that a Jew is supposed to have in them, comparable to the faith in Hashem. We find that Rabbi Akiva, the greatest of the rabbis of the Gemara, was the only one, the Gemara says, who had the courage to take the pasuk, et Hashem alokecha tira, there's a pasuk that says, fear Hashem, that a Jew is required to fear Hashem. There's an extra word in that pasuk, et. The word et there is extra. And the Gemara says that one of the rabbis of the Gemara who used to comment on every single time in the Torah that it said the word et, he always had something additional to add to it. When he came to this pasuk, he told his students, I give up. There's nobody who would dare Go take something else and add it to this sentence. Say that there's something else that's in the category that's equal to Hashem in fear, in the type of respect and fear that's to be shown to Hashem. There's something else that could be compared to this. Until the Gemara says that along came the great Rabbi Akiva, and he wasn't afraid. Rabbi Akiva came along and said, Et lerabot talmidei chachamim. The word et here comes to include the rabbis, that for us, for we, the common Jews, we are required to show the same exact love and respect that we feel towards Hashem. That's the type of love and respect that we're supposed to show for the rabbis of the Gemara, for the teachers, for the leaders of the Klai Yisrael, just as the Torah itself writes very clearly, Vaya'aminu Bashem. You would picture that at least not to put these two words side by side. The Jews had faith in Hashem and Moshe. Say that in one breath. Which Jew today 
who is not from the Hasidim, who has not studied the books of Hasidim, which infuse into a person such emunat chachamim, which Jew is going to look at that sentence and find something, a bone stuck in his throat? There's something difficult to swallow there. How do we say in one breath, believe in Hashem and a human being? How do you say that? And we find the Zohar HaKadosh says that the word Moshe, Mem Shin Hei, is actually the same letters as the word Hashem, as we refer to Hashem. And we know that to us, note, we don't chas v'shalom say that these are one and the same, but we say, as Rabbi Akiva said, that we are required to feel the same fear and respect, just as there is a mitzvah, to love Hashem and to fear Hashem. We have an identical mitzvah, to love tzaddikim and to fear tzaddikim. And the Zohar Kadosh proves conclusively that Hashem is much, much more particular about the love and respect that's shown to tzaddikim versus the love that's shown to Hashem. The Zohar Kadosh tells us the story of Ado Hanavi and Yeravam Benavat. Yeravam Benavat, who was one of the worst Rishayim of all time, a Jewish king who worshipped idols and all, and the Zohar Kadosh says at one point in time he was standing on an altar, sacrificing, bringing many, many sacrifices to Avodah Zarah. Now we know the Gemara says very clearly that of all these sins that arouse an anger in Hashem, the Gemara says, calls man sheyesh Avodah Zarah ba'olam, charon af ba'olam, that this item arouses an anger by Hashem, Avodah Zarah, this angers, literally angers Hashem. We find that he was bringing sacrifice after sacrifice, and as angry as Hashem might have been, nothing happened to him. The Zohar Kadosh says, as the Navi relates, <coughs> that Hashem sent Ado Hanavi, who was a, a tzaddik, he sent him with a message to Yeravam, tell him that he's going to be punished for what he's doing. Tell him that I don't like what he's doing. The Navi tells us that Adon Avi came to him and he was about to tell him exactly what Hashem said. And when Yeravam saw him, he picked up his hand to strike him. The Navi tells us the second he picked up his hand, his hand shriveled up into nothing, into a tiny little piece of skin, and that was the end of his hand, period. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says in the Zohar HaKadosh, look at what the Torah is showing us. Here was this person insulting Hashem in the most obvious manner conceivable, and Hashem was patient. Hashem held it in, he contained his anger. The second this person made the slightest move to touch a tzaddik, the punishment was instantaneous. So we find in certain ways Hashem is more particular about the kavod of tzaddikim than he is even about his own kavod. So the Shepetovka said, let me tell you a story about my rabbi. We were once traveling, the whole group with our rabbi, and we, we, my rabbi was going to spend Shabbat in a certain city. Not his own city, an outside city. He came into the city and he was staying in a certain inn, and one of the, one of the people of the community was so happy to have such a respectable guest in the city, and he had a bottle of wine that was very, very precious, that he had held for a long time, and it was an unusual bottle, and he wanted very much to be zochet, to have the privilege of serving this bottle of wine to this rabbi, because the Gemara tells us that one who is zochet to pour a drink 
for a rabbi, the Gemara says it's as though he poured Nisachim on the Mizbeach. It's as though he sacrificed Nisachim on the Mizbeach, which is one of the highest type of sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash. So this person sent his messenger to go get the bottle, this special bottle for this rabbi. Now, unfortunately, this person also had bottles of wine that were tarif, that were touched by a goy, obviously, or something like that, that made them unkosher, unfit to be drunk by a Jew. And accidentally, this shamash made a mistake, and he brought the wrong bottle of wine. They put the bottle of wine down on the table in front of my rabbi. This I saw with my own eyes, he said. And without anybody touching the table, without anybody doing any type of physical act, the bottle shattered, the wine spilled out, and it was finished. No drop, none of it could be salvaged. This rich man who had brought this wine was devastated by this. He felt terrible because this was the only bottle of this type that he had, and he wanted very much to be able to offer this to this rabbi. He felt very bad about this. He went home, and sure enough, a few hours later, he happened to be in his wine cellar, and he noticed that he was so ecstatic to notice that the bottle that he had wanted was still there, and accidentally his shamash had taken another bottle that looked almost exactly like it. That was a bottle that was kept specifically for goyim. He had it for goyim or whatever, for whatever reason, that was unkosher. So he said, we saw with our own eyes the type of protection is a pasuk that says, lo yeune kol ra, lo yune kol oven. I forget the exact wording of the pasuk. The fa- lo yune la tzadik kol oven. That Hashem never allows any type of accident, any type of sin to occur to a tzadik even accidentally, Hashem protects him. Because the tzaddik is so careful on his own to be religious, Hashem himself protects the tzaddik from any, any of this type of mistake. At this, the Noda Biuda commented, now note, now he was talking in a humble way, not disrespectfully, not challengingly, but he said, I, I hear what you're saying and I believe it completely, but yet, how do we know to assume that this is miracle? How do we know that this isn't just, in other words, the servant went to get one bottle and accidentally he got another bottle? In other words, why is it that you feel so confident in playing this up as a miracle, as something that shows the greatness of the rabbi? Maybe this was just a type of accident that happened. The Shepetovka said, Obviously, again, once again, we'll have to st- we'll have to refer to the Gemara to clarify this. The Gemara tells us in Nida, the Gemara tells us a story about Rava, who was one of the outstanding rabbis of the Gemara, <clears throat> whom the Gemara says that one of the queens of the Goyim at that time, she had tremendous respect for Rava, and she would always talk to her children about the greatness of the wisdom of the rabbis of the Jews. So the Gemara says that one time her son decided to he try to convince her, he wanted to really, really show her that she was mistaken, that here she thinks they're so smart and great and intelligent, let's test them and you'll see they're not as all-knowledgeable as you think. So she sent to Rava a sample of blood. The Gemara Nida discusses many different types of blood, the different shades of blood of Nida, how we can tell when a woman is pure or impure, all types of different complicated laws related to this. She sent a sample of blood to Rava with the question, could you identify what type of blood this is? The Gemara says that Rava looked at this, and he told her, he sent back a message immediately, that this is Dam Chimud. This is the blood of a person who has been aroused 
to having thoughts of physical relations between a man and a woman, and this is the type of blood that comes from that type of arousal. This is what he mentioned, and note, this was something that was very, very difficult to identify. So this is, he sent back this, he immediately sent back a message that this is what it is. The Gemara says that she heard, she heard this, and she showed it to her son, and she said, see how great the rabbis are? You see, he knew right away what this was. The son said, how do you know that he knew? Maybe he guessed. Maybe it's just like a blind man walking. Sometimes even a person who's completely blind, and yet he can find his way to a window, he can find his way to a door. How do you know that this wasn't just a lucky guess? She said, whoa. Now, now it's, it's time I really showed you up. The Gemara says she prepared 60 different types of blood, bloods from different animals, all different types of things. She prepared 60 samples and sent them all to Ravan. She said, could you please label these for us? Tell us exactly where each one of these come from and what stages they were in, all different types of explanations about it. The Gemara says that 59 out of the 60 he was able to identify without any problem the 60th was something that he was completely unfamiliar with. He had never seen this item. What it was was the blood that comes from lice, the blood of a, a small louse. That was the blood that she had sent. That was the 60th sample. And the Yamanah says Rava did not know what it was. But he didn't label it, I don't know. He just sent back 59 answers. And as was usual, because she was a queen, a respectable woman, whenever she would send him something, whenever he would send something back, he would always include a present for her. It just so happened to be that the present that he decided to send along this time was a brush for lice, a lice brush. So he sent back 59 answers as to what these types of blood were, plus this brush that's made specifically for lice. She showed these 60 answers to her son, and she said to her son, you see that even this, which is something which the biggest doctors, the most knowledgeable scientists in the world, would not be able to identify the blood of lice, and yet you see even this he knew. So you see, we see an example from this Gemara as to the greatness of a tzaddik. So the Noda Bihuda said on the contrary, just the opposite. Wouldn't this seem to prove the example that just the opposite? We see here that he didn't know the answer. The Gemara tells us clearly that he didn't know the answer, and it just so happened to work out that Hashem made it, that he sent this brush, and the brush happened to be a brush made for lice, so it appeared that he did know the answer. The Shepetovka told him, come on. Look look at what you're seeing. The Pasuk says in Mishlei, Im Navalta Ve'im Zamota Yad And the Gemara learns from this Pasuk that by Tzadikim, Hashem works things out, that their hands and their mouths always work together. Whatever they say, anything that they speak is a reflection of what they do. What they do is a reflection of what they're supposed to say. This was an obvious manifestation of a miracle by Hashem, that this was a case where his mouth could not provide the answer. Hashem made it that his actions filled in the answer. 
this is the fantastic Shmirah, the protection that Hashem gives for a tzaddik, that number one, not only will no sin, has ever happen to him, but even in a case where a tzaddik might not know the answer to a question, Hashem will never leave him in this stage of doubt. Hashem will provide the answer either in an obvious manner or a hidden manner. This, at this point in time, the Inodah Biyadah was completely satisfied, completely happy, and he said, thank you, there's no way in the world I could thank you for what you've done for me. And they ate together a little bit, and he began walking the Shepetovka to the door to see him out, to wish him a very good trip home, going back home. As they were walking to the door, the Inodah Biyadah said, wow, I can't believe it, I just reminded myself about a question that's been bothering me for years, and I never, it never occurred to me that I would find a person to ask this question to, and now, out of any person walking this earth that I could think that I'd want to ask a question to, I can't think of anybody better than yourself. He said, I recall when I was a very small child, at one point in time, a poor man came knocking on the home of my father, <clears throat> and he was asking for some type of assistance in a certain item. And my father at that point was not in a position, he wasn't able to help this poor man. This poor man was obviously very sharp, and he said to my father, I'll tell you what, if you do help me, if you do give me what I'm looking for, I'll tell you a fantastic midrash, a midrash plia, a very wondrous type of statement in the midrash, which seems completely not understandable, and I'll, I'll explain it to you. I'll give you the fantastic explanation of this Midrash. My father explained to him that I wish, honestly, if there were any way for me to help you, I would, but I'm just, I just don't have the means. He didn't mention what it was that the person needed, but there was something that he needed, which his father obviously did not have that item, so he said, I'm sorry, I can't. So this person told my father, fine, then I'll just tell you the Midrash, and the explanation I will not give you. <clears throat> and he mentioned to him the statement in the Midrash. The statement was, there's a Midrash that says, there's a Pasuk in the Chumash that says, El mul panei ha-menorah, ya'iru shivat hanerot. That the menorah that burned in the Bet HaMikdash, that which Aaron HaKohen, the Kohen Gadol, would light it every single day, and this would burn beautifully in the Bet HaMikdash. This is a pasuk in the Torah, and the Midrash says about this pasuk, Petach devarecha yair. The opening statement, the, your opening words, will give forth light. This is the statement in the Midrash. There's a pasuk that says that the menorah in the Bet HaMikdash will burn beautifully. It had seven candles. The Midrash says about this, the pasuk says, your opening words will give forth light. This is the whole Midrash. Could you please explain to me what is this Midrash talking about? What, what is it, what's, what's the connection between your opening words giving forth light and the Menorah in the Bet HaMikdash? The Shepetavka said, can you please bring me a Sidur? He asked for a special kind of Sidur. They brought it to him. And he put his foot up on a bench. He began looking at the Sidur for a few minutes. And he closed it and said, okay, I got it. Listen very carefully. <clears throat> in the Gemara, the Gemara describes the dimensions of the menorah in the Bet HaMikdash, all the different dimensions. We know that the menorah in the Bet HaMikdash had seven candles and had room for seven cups of oil. 
it had 11 kaftorim. How do you say kaftor in English? Yeah. Buttons. <laughs> buttons. It's a type of design that existed on the menorah, a, a type of button shape on the menorah. It had 22 givim, which was, again, a certain type of decoration that existed on the menorah. And the height of the menorah, the only item that's debated in the Gemara about the menorah is the height of the menorah, whether it was 17 tfachim or 18 tfachim. The Gemara says that there's a debate between two rabbis. One rabbi says that it was 18 tfachim. A tefach is a fist, approximately between 3 and 4 inches. One rabbi says it was between 17 tfachim. The other rabbi says 18 tfachim. This is, these are the dimensions of the menorah. The Shepetovka said, this is the secret that this Midrash is giving us. The Midrash says, Petach Divarecha. Your opening words, Yair, will give forth light. <coughs> Whose opening words? The opening words of Hashem shed light on the exact dimensions of the Menorah. If we study the five books of the Chumash, you'll note... Let's take Sefer Bereshit, the first Chumash. The first Pasuk, the first sentence of the first Chumash has exactly seven words. Bereshit, bara elokim, et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz, exactly seven words. This corresponds to the seven candle holders of the menorah. The second Chumash, Shemot, has exactly the first pasuk. Note the wording in the Midrash was Petach Devarecha Yair. Your opening words will give forth light. The opening sentence of each one of the Chumashim is going to shed light about the Menorah. The second Chumash Shemot, the first pasuk, has exactly 11 words corresponding to these 11 buttons on the design of the Menorah. The third Chumash, Vayikra, the first Pasuk has exactly nine words, corresponding to the nine flowers, a beautiful type of flowery design that existed on the Menorah. The, f- the fifth book of the Torah, the Sefer Dvarim, the first Pasuk has exactly 22 words, corresponding to the 22 Givim, as we said, the other design on the Menorah. And last but not least, if we look in the Chumash Bamidbar, you'll note that in the Chumash Bamidbar, the first sentence there has exactly 17 words. This is what the Midrash means. If we want to know which opinion of these two rabbis in the Gemara, one rabbi says it was 17 Tvachim, one says 18. If we look at the opening words, the opening sentences of the five sections of the Torah, they will shed light on the instrument that gave off light in the Beit HaMikdash, in the Menorah, the Menorah and the Beit HaMikdash, they will tell us everything that we need to know about the Menorah. When the Noda Behuda heard this explanation, he was just ecstatic. He said, there's nothing better that you could have done for me than to resolve this one outstanding item that I had in my mind that I could never resolve, and this you've solved for me also. He told him, Hashem should help you, that your, the word, the word, <coughs> the number 17 is Bigimatria Tov. This number which he resolved, the debate between 18 and 17 is Tov, he said we should be Zocher, that Hashem should bless all of us, us and the entire Jewish nation, with every type of tov possible. And this was how this encounter came to an end. The results of this story were, obviously, that this rabbi, the Noda Behuda, who was one of the greatest among the Mitnagdim, 
came to recognize the fact <coughs> that as the Mishnah says, Velo Am Haaretz Chasid, that when we talk, when we use this title Chasid in its proper text, where, where the Mitnagdim finish off their, what they consider their completion, the peak in Judaism, which is a thorough knowledge of Shas, of all 60 Gemarot, of all four sections of the Shulchan Aruch, that's where Hasidut begins. In order for a person to begin to understand the Likutei Moharan, the Sifarim of the Baal Shem Tov, all of this, those Sifarim, their students, the introduction to becoming a student of Rabbein Azar, one of those was to be capable of being one of the greatest leaders of the, among the Mitnagdim. As we find the example of Rabbi Natanzal, who was one of the closest students of Rabbi Nazal, who at age 22, when he met Rabbi Nazal first, at that point in time, his father-in-law, who was a judge over a whole section of Europe, at that point in time, his father-in-law was ready to appoint his son-in-law, Rabbi Natanzal, as to replace him in the position of being judge over a whole section of cities in Europe. That's how knowledgeable he was. And this Rabbi Natanzal, when he came to Rabbi Nazal, he said that compared to my rabbi, I know nothing whatsoever. He put aside all of his own knowledge completely, and he began to learn with the thirst, the type of thirst that a person who's really knowledgeable in Torah, has this thirst, the respect for the fact that the knowledge of Torah is infinite, and there's no ending, and this is why he was okay to get to the level that he got to. To finish off with one <coughs> last comment, something that Rabbi Zal used to mention many times, we know the Gemara tells us that Torah is compared, we, the Torah is compared to many items. One of the items that the Torah is compared to is water. One of the fantastically interesting items that the Mepharashim bring, why do we say that the Torah is compared to water specifically? We know that the law is that when a Jew eats or drinks any item whatsoever, no matter what quantity, if a Jew eats the tiniest speck of a pea or a cucumber or anything, he's required to make a beracha before eating the item. As far as making a baracha, the baracha achrona, when we finish eating an item, that's dependent on the size of the item. There is a specific size that's needed for borei nefashot, or for alamechia, or for birkat amazon. There, there's a question of size. As far as making a baracha before you eat or drink, there's the tiniest amount requires a baracha. The Gemara tells us that there is one exception. You can have a person who drinks a gallon of one type of liquid, and yet there would not be a requirement for a beracha. What is that? The Gemara says water. If water is a unique item, <coughs> where it's only if a person drinks it because they're thirsty to satisfy a thirst, that's when it necessitates a beracha. But if a person is not thirsty whatsoever, and they drink water. Water is an item which has no physical taste, there's no physical pleasure in a sense that's involved in drinking it whatsoever, and therefore the Gemara tells us we know that the Beracha is made for the pleasure in the item. When a person is not thirsty, they will not derive any pleasure whatsoever from water, whereas if a person is not thirsty and he drinks juice or soda or liquor or anything like that, no matter how not thirsty he is, there is a degree of pleasure. In water there's no pleasure, and therefore it does not necessitate a beracha. 
The Mefarashim say this is how we compare the study of Torah. The Torah is compared to water. In order for a person to be zochet to succeed in the study of Torah, the one ingredient that the person needs is a thirst. If a person ever gets to a point where he feels a lack of thirst, he's not thirsty, he feels that he's learned a lot and he's knowledgeable already, so that it's like a person who just finished eating. You bring out a a delicious cake for him, he's not really attracted to it because he feels that he has just finished a big meal, he feels like he's gathered a lot inside of him. So too, the true success, the true beracha in the study of Torah is only when a person zochet to be humble. When a person zochet that the more he learns, he always realizes the fact that the Torah is infinite. So that no matter how much I'm learning, I'm never, you're not closing the gap on infinite. On something that's infinite, if you know a thousand or you know ten thousand, you're not any closer to the finish line. The finish line is infinite, it stretches infinitely. Halavai, Hashem should bless us. We should be zochet to emulate this one characteristic that we were zochet to see in our own rabbi and in all the leading rabbis among the Jews, the chassidim, the talmidei chachamim, this attribute of anava, humbleness, and to have this type of thirst for knowledge of Torah, be zochet thereby to, to, to the true beracha in the study of Torah, and be zochet thereby to get to see the coming of the Mashiach, the binyam bet amen, amen, amen.